0: Hello, and welcome to the TechDirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical.
2: Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle.
0: Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates we pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinize their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up
2: to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig at the cat.
0: Uh, I kind of hate that I feel that I need to keep doing this, but uh, yet again, we're going to have a podcast uh, with some experts to discuss an attempt to legislate away the open internet. (laughs) Uh, In the past year, there have been a few of these such podcasts uh, because there have been a few of these attempts to legislate away the open internet. Uh, Mostly they've been focused on the EU, but uh, now we get to have our own fun in the US. Uh, Last week, Senator Josh Hawley, uh, who was elected with Promises to rein in big tech uh, after he started an, an investigation of Google in his previous role as Attorney General of Missouri released a bill that he's been threatening for a while now, entitled the Ending Support for Internet Censorship Act. Uh, Somewhat contrary to the name, I think the bill would likely encourage a lot more internet censorship, but we'll get to that. Uh, The bill is mostly based off of what I believe is a mostly false premise, uh, a premise that we've discussed and I think debunked previously both on the podcast and on the site, that there's some sort of clear evidence of anti-conservative bias in how the big internet companies moderate content. Uh, As we've noted over and over again, a few examples of these services moderating Nazis, trolls, and harassers is not necessarily evidence of an anti-conservative bias. And we've yet to see any evidence of silencing conservative voices that can easily be linked back to said trollish behavior. Uh, And a few anecdotes is, of course, not empirical support, especially when they ignore how there are people on the progressive end of the spectrum who are also being banned or uh, otherwise moderated for violating rules as well. Either way, uh, Hawley's bill is based off of this premise, and it would modify CDA 230 in a few key ways. Uh, If you're a large internet platform, you automatically lose the liability immunity granted under CDA 230. And to regain it, you would need to pay for an audit of your moderation practices to prove by clear and convincing evidence that your moderation practices are not biased against any political party. Uh, And if any employees are found to act in a way that might be deemed uh, biased, you uh, basically need to fire them. Uh, After the audit, you then uh, need to get a supermajority, which appears to be four out of the five of the political appointees to the FTC to grant you a certificate that gives you back your 230 immunity. Uh, Well, just for two years, then you need to go through this whole process all over again. Uh, To me, the bill is uh, so obviously unconstitutional that I I think it's kind of a joke, but I'm uh, not exactly the expert here. So for the podcast, I've got not one, not two, but three experts (laughs) lined up. Um, First up, we've got Jeff Kosef, uh, who was just on the podcast a couple months ago talking about his wonderful new book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, which is the definitive book about uh, Section 230. Uh, Second, we've got Daphne Keller, who's been on the podcast a few times to talk about Intermediary liability issues, which of course makes sense, since she's the director of intermediary liability at Stanford Center for Internet and Society. And finally, we have Aaron Mackey, who has not been on the podcast before, who is a staff attorney at EFF uh, and who works on a variety of different issues, including free speech. So, everyone, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Glad
0: to be here. here. Cool. So. uh, Jeff, I'm going to start with you, um, because you've literally written the book on 230. (laughs) So can you give just a general, what's your take on on this bill? Oh, I think
2: it's great. It should pass right now. (laughs) Sorry. sorry. Um, I'll, and just to give the caveat that I'm only speaking on my own behalf and obviously not on behalf of the Naval Academy, um, I have some serious concerns. About a lot of aspects of the bill, but uh, particularly having five political appointees make decisions about what is politically biased. Um, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how it's implemented. <laughs> and I mean, of the many concerns, I mean, I think number two on my list would be the firing employees who <laughs> moderate in a politically biased way. I think. I'm not an employment law expert, but I have a lot of concerns about how you fire or discipline someone under this law and not run into various employment law issues. But, I mean, overall, I'm just not sure what the standards would be. And I, I think that at, at, at this point, if, if this were something to advance, I would really think, you know, Section 230 under this bill would not really have any effect, and it would this bill would basically be the same thing effectively as repealing 230 altogether, which is, I think, the discussion that we're ultimately going to be having.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a, a part of me that wondered like, would platforms even bother since the process seems so ridiculous and so nearly impossible to actually accomplish to get those protections. Yeah. Um, I,
2: I mean, I, I think that the, the supermajority thing that you mentioned, I mean, I think one thing to look at is, that there is the supermajority to grant the certification, but when you look at it the other way, that means that there could be two commissioners that block a certification. Right. So that that that's where I think the real utility of section two thirty comes into question under a system like this where a majority or minority party in the FTC could basically just withhold two thirty immunity.
0: Yeah, which seems concerning. Um daphne let's let's switch to you for a second. so you tweeted out some thoughts on this what what's What's your take on on the bill in general uh,
1: i I think it's pretty weird <laughs> <laughs> overall but but weird specifically to to think that there's this thing called political neutrality and that it's achievable and that the platforms know what it means. And then these, you know, five political appointees in the FTC will also know and share that definition, and so they can certify that a platform is being neutral. That that seems kind of crazy to me. Like that's not really how uh, public discourse works. I, I don't think probably any of us on this call even uh, could agree on what constitutes political neutrality if we tried
0: yeah i i don't think, i don't think you could get any any group of people together who would agree on pol- what political neutrality actually means and i think just even the debates over whether or not there is anti-conservative bias on these platforms is you know is representative of that right i mean no matter how much people point out you know someone will come up with a ridiculous study and that's what we've written about a couple of times why those studies are not uh accurately depicting conservative anti-conservative bias and yet we still get yelled at and, and people tell us well it's obvious that they're restricting anti uh restricting conservatives and they'll point to one or two examples um which are usually not very good examples they're usually people who were banned for trollish or harassing behavior or for being the American Nazi party, for example. Um, and, uh, and then we just get yelled at some more. In fact, I can almost, um, uh, predict that some, some of our listeners are going to yell at me uh, on Twitter or on TechTurt about just this very podcast and the fact that I'm saying all this because I'm, uh, again, being woefully oblivious to what they insist is, is direct evidence of, of bias. But I think that actually demonstrates the problem that, that nobody agrees to what, what neutrality even means in, in this situation.
1: And it's funny because in the past, there have been legal doctrines that tried to get broadcasters or cable companies to have some semblance of, of neutrality under, under much more detailed like, rules and complex regulatory frameworks. That's things like the fairness doctrine um, re- requiring broadcasters to show, you know, quote unquote, both sides of an issue as if there were two, only two sides to any issue. But for decades, the, the Republican position, you know, including in the official GOP platform, was to oppose that absolutely, and to say that it's unconstitutional. And in fact, uh, President Reagan, in vetoing legislation that would have reinstated the Fairness Doctrine in his signing statement said, the problem is this is unconstitutional. This puts too much authority in the hands of a government regulator to tell the key channels of communication what they can and cannot transmit. It's too subject to capture. And so it's it's very strange for people um, from the communications field who've been following this for a long time to see the conservative position shift you know, 180 degrees to say, <laughs> wait, we do need a fairness doctrine and we need it for the internet.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to some extent, um, I, I actually do tend to agree that the fairness doc- doctrine is feels unconstitutional, um, but it, at least there is a little bit more of an argument there, and that it was for public airwaves, and so because the, the government has control over those airwaves, it, it can set certain you know parameters for for their use. So I can at least sort of see that argument, though I still. Think it's probably unconstitutional, but there there isn't that argument for the internet un- unless you have a really really strained definition of of uh, DARPA creating the or you know ARPA creating the internet you know decades ago and therefore still having some sort of regulatory say over it, which I, I don't think applies. Um, Aaron, let, let me bring you into the conversation as well. Uh, so, um, what's uh, uh, we may be repeating what's already been said, but what's what's been your sort of reaction to the bill?
3: Yeah, so I completely agree with what um, Jeff and and Daphne said. Um, You know, one of the big things is that this bill would violate the First Amendment because it invests in the government agency this sort of ambiguous discretion to strip platforms of the legal protections that are in 230 right now, and it's going to be stripping those platforms based on inherently political decisions that they make because – the mere moderation of any content is a political act um, setting aside the sort of classic left versus right question but the the ability to sort of say what goes on your platform and what doesn't is a political decision and so um, there's a huge first amendment issue there Um, but then sort of setting aside that i I don't think this is actually a solution that anyone wants uh, even those who disagree with everything i just said and believe that there is a, a first amendment issue here um, or there isn't a First Amendment issue here. I think, you know, what, when you look at what people like to do online, which is that in part they like to have dialogue with others who disagree with them, but they also like to have communities um, surrounding people who do agree with them. And so to sort of create this new regime in which um, everyone's political viewpoints can be interjected by an opposing view and you have to sort of have a right to, to carry those would really sort of stunt the internet's ability to protect free speech and association online, to allow those communities to develop uh, and to thrive and to give themselves space. Um, And then, you know, and that's just from, purely from internet users' perspective, but I also think from the platform's perspective, it's really gonna just kill innovation and diversity because what we're gonna do is you're gonna disincentivize online platforms from taking measures to protect their users. I mean, if the whole point is that you want to create a, a different sort of space with your own rules about who gets to post and what, and you know what they talk about, you know subtopics on, you know subreddits, those sorts of things, um, or you don't want to have people harassing other users um, or engaging in speech that might be protected, but you just don't want to have on your platform, um, those are the very efforts that Section 230 is intended to protect, and so I don't understand how the result that you get actually is something that that anyone wants. Even if you believe that there's um, some sort of conservative bias by the major platforms, um, you give everyone sort of the right to interject their own views into your thinking, into your association, into your community.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that strikes me is like, you know, I've seen a lot of, um, I, I would generally classify them as Trump supporters who are cheering this on. Um, but I wonder if they recognize like what that would mean for say the donald subreddit um where a lot of them congregate, where um they currently do very quickly ban people who are not necessarily uh trump fans, and yet under uh this law i you know if if Reddit wanted to retain c d a two thirty protections they, they wouldn't that wouldn't be allowed anymore and suddenly that particular forum uh you know would would have to let in people with uh, uh less than flattering uh feelings towards uh, towards the president uh, which right. uh, I, I don't think they're prepared for
3: right and, and we also don't know from this bill what what that would look like I, I mean reddit's a great example because there's just many questions does that mean does political neutrality mean that the the feed for the the donald subreddit means that you know every we just sort of have to have contrarian views expressed um or can we create a another subreddit um and sort of silo the people over there and as long as there's some sort of broader um diversity or neutrality i guess as the act describes it um then they'd be okay the bill doesn't say
2: well and i would also add i i'm just wondering practically here um having i'm interested in the choice of having the Federal Trade Commission be this arbiter of all of these issues. Um, the, I mean, the, there, there were different options. I guess the FCC could have come in. Uh, I mean, NASA, as far as I know, I mean, I think they probably have as much um, connection to content moderation. I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of FTC staff, attorneys, commissioners over the years on cybersecurity and privacy issues, and they're tremendously talented in those areas, and they have deep expertise. But I can't think of anyone there off the top of my head who would have the expertise in this. And frankly, I've not spoken with anyone, but I don't know whether they would want to be engaged in making these determinations. Uh, And in fact, a former FTC commissioner who's a Republican uh, weighed in on Twitter saying that he did not agree with this proposal. So I found that to be pretty telling.
1: I I think a lot of people in the debate maybe don't appreciate it, what it would mean for platforms to have to host everything the First Amendment allows, to have to step back and be neutral on things like the Christchurch massacre video, which is legal speech in a lot of contexts, but which most people think is morally abhorrent, and they don't want to see it when they log on to Facebook or Twitter or the Nancy Pelosi video, which again is legal in most contexts, um, but a lot of people want platforms to take it down. And and this is the subject of one of my favorite little details in in the Holly bill is it says, well, if you need to take things down to meet a customer demand, you know, or to make sure your advertisers don't defect. If you want to take something down for a purely profit motivated reason, that's okay. Hmm. But, but if actually you're doing it because of political disagreement with the content or, or disapproval, you know, you don't want to host Holocaust deniers or, or neo-Nazis. That's not OK. Um, you know, So it's sort of you know, on some level, it recognizes that there's tremendous customer demand, as Aaron was saying, for a place to go and talk online that preserves sort of civil discourse as you as you see it and that does that by excluding this lawful but offensive speech. Um, but the general thrust of the bill is if you are risking taking those things down, you are very likely to lose your 230 protection.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, even because I've seen a lot of people... Um Certainly making that argument, which is like they they don't moderate anything like just stop moderating entirely um and you know the example I usually give are not even the ones that that you gave Daphne, but just spam right I mean straight up spam, which is you know constitutionally protected um for the most part um but you know most people recognize that a spam filter of some kind or blocking spam or shutting down spam accounts is actually probably a good thing um but they you know don't recognize like you know once you've done that you've you've agreed that certain moderation makes sense, and then it's a question of you know where where do you put the bar um and so i i mean um to some extent you know some of this discussion um which which we had a little bit before we started recording this podcast, some of the discussion is around like well you know how serious is this bill? Does this bill have a chance? Um, And I I think the general sense is that it it probably doesn't have much of a chance. I mean, it doesn't have any co-sponsors as far as I know. It's just sort of uh, a uh, performance piece by by this one senator, I guess. Um, And there's no sort of companion House bill or anything. Um, But... I still think it's important to have this discussion because it's, it's sort of setting up this whole argument about what do we do about 230 and what do we do about the moderation practices of, of the different Internet platforms. Um, and so I worry that, that this bill in particular sort of frames the discussion as one where you know, platforms shouldn't do any moderation at all without recognizing what that actually means.
1: Like, yeah, I think and, the and, bill uh, supposes. The, I think the bill supposes, and a lot of the discussion, even among experts, supposes that platforms can somehow just opt into being a common carrier and never take anything down. But I don't think that's actually true. I mean, if they get DMCA notices, they're still going to have to follow up and take things down. If they get a notice alleging that something is defamatory, I think it's not at all clear that they can just ignore that and say, oh, no, I'm a common carrier except for copyright notices. (laughs) You know, I I think that um, (laughs) that we should not assume there's some option of just leaving everything up and being legally okay.
2: Well, and, and I would also, um, if people want to get an idea of what the internet would be like with leaving everything up, I would have people read the article that ran in The Verge yesterday, I believe, about a lot of it was about the lives of content moderators. But um, part of it involved the content that they're exposed to on a routine basis. And if you want to talk about a hellscape that would exist if yeah. there was no moderation at all... Uh, I would probably cut off all my Internet connections if (laughs) or at least not be on social media if we weren't to have any moderation at all. So I think we really need to think through what that would be like.
0: Yeah, and and, um, I I mean, some of it, you know, I, I think one of the things that that. A lot of it is that people just don't understand what what the world would be like um Some of it is that they have sort of different views on on sort of what would happen in that in that world and and you know and I've been very vocal myself about the idea that I think that there should be more openness to to sort of allow what might be referred to as sort of third party tools or third party moderators to be able to come in and so maybe take you know take the larger feed and and moderate it in a different way so that you're not just reliant on you know, Facebook making all the decisions, or Twitter making all the decisions, or something, something like that. And so, I've seen that argument made um, that that the the big platforms themselves should be forced to to run a whole feed, but that you know then others can can or or individual users can sort of set up their own rules for for how they they filter. Um, and you know, that's a solution that. I, I like the idea of of allowing for more more end user power and pushing pushing the decision making out to the ends of the network um, but i don 't think it 's a realistic solution to say that that has to be coupled with the platform's not doing anything at all, um, which gets back to some of the points that, Daphne, you were just making. I mean, copyright issues or d- defamation or you know, or, or spam or any of these things that they feel that they don't want to have to deal with um, or legally are required to take down in some cases. And, of course, there's also the beyond the U.S. question, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about… A very U.S.-centric view of the world, and and the rest of the world is is even less uh, open to the idea of a of an uncensored internet. Um, so I I just don't see how how this is a solution to to anything.
2: Yeah, and I I think that the bigger threat to Section Two Thirty when we're talking about sort of the how how realistic this bill's passage is, and I have no idea, unfortunately, not in the political <laughs> business in terms of my expertise. But I will say, I mean, the bigger I, I think the other criticism is the polar opposite of Holly, which is yeah. that they're not moderating enough. And I, I think that I mean, we, we've we seen that with the in the foster debate. Um, we've seen that in other areas where there's sort of informal proposals coming out. And I, I mean, I think when you're really looking at whether Section 230 will survive, I think that's the other side of the criticism that we really have to look
0: at. Yeah, and and actually I think that's that's a really important distinction to make, and I had written up something a few weeks ago noting that, you know, it seemed like, you know, there are arguments that there's sort of bipartisan hatred for Section 230, but in opposite directions, uh, where a lot of the, the Democratic to- talking points have been that Platforms aren't doing enough, uh, and they're not dealing with um, dangerous content of of one form or another. Um, and there was just you know uh, a few days before before the Hawley Bill dropped, there was a, this House hearing on deepfakes, and you know part of part of that hearing included a discussion of how 230 should be amended to sort of force platforms um, to be more reasonable and responsible in taking down things like deepfakes, and yet under the Hawley bill that would potentially put, you know, especially if you're talking about like the, the, uh, uh, the Nancy Pelosi video that would suddenly raise a whole bunch of questions. You know, how, how, if, if you were in a position where somehow, uh, both Democrats and Republicans got their wishes on two thirty, where you had to, uh, be more, re- uh, reasonable in your policies for taking down things like, you know, uh, 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 changed videos uh, and you couldn't do anything that, that was politically not neutral, how would you deal with a Nancy Pelosi uh, kind of video? And, uh, you know, I, I, so I almost wonder if, if if those two things and the two different views on 230 and the two different criticisms coming at from opposite directions almost lead to nothing happening with 230 because the, the two proposals are so at odds with each other, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm also not as as connected to the political side uh, as, as some other folks may be.
1: Yeah, that might be an optimistic view, <laughs> or, or, or a view that attributes too much sophistication to to the people drafting and supporting bills. You know, I, I think if there's a political desire to punish big tech companies, um, and the v- vehicle for that is changing or getting rid of 230 there might be enough momentum that nobody notices that the political goals or the, the policy goals the outcomes people are looking for are diametrically opposed you know if if what you want is for platforms to take down more hate speech or more misogynistic speech or more bullying and attacks on female journalists like all of these you know, really bad things that go on 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 platform speech, you want one change to CDA 230, or maybe you you think you do. Um, And if what you want is to make platforms keep all that stuff up because you consider it political, uh, that's a very different change.
0: Yeah, but I I, I do think you're making a really good point there, which is that, um, like, amending or removing CDA 230 has sort of become shorthand for punishing tech, um, and there seems to be less interest in actually, well, one, understanding what 230 does, but two, understanding what the impact would be of changing or amending it other than you know, harming the big tech companies. And so I, I do fear the sort of, well, uh, this is bad for, for the big tech companies, therefore it is good without consideration to everything else. Uh, raises uh, some some pretty big concerns, and actually, to 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 get Aaron back in the conversation because I think we've 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 been talking over. It. <laughs> you know, it's, it is one of the points that EFF has certainly raised that, like, you know, for all the talk of 230 being, um, you know, people consider it. Uh, you know, the phrase that I've seen used a bunch is a gift to the tech companies. That's not really accurate. It has really been a gift to sort of. You know the public's ability to use the internet, um, and and yet it's now treated as if it was some sort of gift to the tech companies instead. Um, so, Aaron, I don't know if you want if you have any thoughts on on that.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think people see two hundred and thirty, and they they interact with it most directly when they do use major social media platforms. But you know, the internet—what we often say is the the modern internet that everyone uses—is is built by intermediaries and those aren't just social media companies those are your if you have a website uh, if you sell anything online um you know basically everything that we do online is mediated unless you're you know building your own email server um and building your own website and, and the server to hold it and and working with you know domain registrars on your own and, and that sort of thing you're you're your experiences online are are mediated and, and 230 protects all of them. And they also protect, you know, many pre-digital businesses um, who regularly make use of the internet and allow for their pre-digital customers to connect with them on the internet. And so I think, you know, we, we try to diagnose this problem based on our interactions with say the biggest platforms and there are serious and legitimate problems there that, that need to be addressed but what they don't realize is that 230 applies to the entire internet and every user's internet experience and they think they don't think through the sort of ways in which we all rely on intermediaries in everything we do every day
1: it, it is interesting how this bill tries to do a split based on size. So it basically says you're only vulnerable to losing CDA 230 immunity if you're over 30 million monthly US users or 500 million annual global revenue. which is a fascinating new trend in, you know, just in the last yeah. year or two and sort of the buzz around platform liability. And and you see allusions to it, um, I think, in some public statements from Nancy Pelosi um, in a blog post that Kent Walker at Google put up this week. So, so th- that is an interesting direction. And nominally, you know, it would respond to some of these concerns about the whole Internet, including lots of small players, depending on CDA 230. Um, but it still leaves a lot of really interesting questions about what this bill would mean for some really big players like Amazon Web Services or eBay or Amazon. You know, what what do those companies have to do under this law?
3: And Daphne, do you think that um, like a, a GoDaddy or, or someone else is, is captured by this law? I mean, I. I think so. I yeah, mean, I mean it,
1: it says anyone who counts as an um as an entity immunized by CDA 230 in the first place is captured by the law as long as they meet the size threshold. So I think a lot of infrastructure providers are probably getting really worried right now.
3: Right. So, so then um, your decisions to host, you know, particular businesses and to arrange your um, domain registration service in a way that, you know, you want now means that you basically have to host anyone um, on on pain of of losing 230
1: yep which has not been godaddy's position in the past and in fact they've gotten a lot of praise in congressional hearings for taking things down voluntarily
0: right yeah i mean and that is also part of the issue which which gets back to the issue that we were just discussing before which is this idea that everyone is so focused on you know mainly facebook um youtube and twitter as sort of like the only companies that use two thirty um and obviously there are a lot more than that and um and the fact that like infrastructure players are treated identically to to you know uh, end user service providers um represents a whole different set of challenges as well
3: right yeah. There's also, go, oh, ahead. go ahead Daphne. no, no, no. Uh, There's also just, I want to go back. I I think there is something to this idea about size. Um, And I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is is 230 the the lever we want to pull on when dealing with these really large platforms and just to sort of connect that to something, Mike, that you said earlier about sort of allowing end users to have access to their own feeds or to at least open them up so that third parties could compete and provide services to users of the major media platforms i mean those speak to sort of competition and and antitrust issues and 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 things where you know we have legal regimes and and policies where we've thought about how to deal with these types of problems in other sectors and they generally don't revolve around the actual content that anyone carries and so i think it's we're sort of at this moment where there are legitimate criticisms, but then everyone immediately sort of turns to 230 as uh, the reason or the thing that must be fixed. And that's not to say that 230 has not generated problems um, or resulted in, you know, content that is harmful. Um, It's just a question of whether the the solution to, you know, having really large platforms is um, this one. And I don't think it is.
1: Of course, if you're a legislator, crossing out 230 is easy or adding a sort of a uh, half thought through substitute like like this one is easy writing nuanced competition laws or nuanced <laughs> privacy laws that's really hard <laughs> so you know if, if what you're looking for is a way to say hey I did something about the the power of big technology 230 is the low hanging fruit
0: yeah um yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> um Well and but just to get back to to, to the size question, I, I think that is interesting. It's probably it's probably worth exploring in in more detail, perhaps not on this podcast, but um, I mean, there there was the element of that in, like, the EU copyright directive as well. That there's sort of this sort of safe harbor. And I've heard it suggested a lot for other things, and I've seen it tossed around for various privacy regulations. Also, this idea of including some sort of, you know, safe harbor, um, but not, not a safe harbor in the sense of, like, the DMCA, where if you follow these rules, you're okay. Um, but in, in, you know, when you're small, you get different rules. And and we haven't really tested that so much um, and I worry about the incentives that creates, um, you know, even for a smaller company that, that isn't subject to the the laws, if they intend to grow big and eventually will be, um, does that create weird incentives that we're not really thinking through what that does in the long run?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that's right. And I, I do think that the, you, you see this even in privacy and cybersecurity legislation and, um. The California's uh, sort of very bizarre attempt at enacting the GDPR-like legislation. They have these weird thresholds that I think are kind of targeted at size. Uh, New York has a financial institution, cybersecurity regulation, that exempts smaller institutions from a lot of the requirements. But the problem becomes, I think you're exactly right, is once you grow, if you've built your business on a certain regulatory model, how do you suddenly change that? Right. One and and I, I don't really see any good answers to that question.
0: Yeah. Um so the and then the other thing that I was trying to think through, a, a reporter had asked me a question um and I, I was uh and I, I didn't have a good answer for it, which was basically like if if the Holly Bill were somehow to become law, how would the platform what would the platforms do? Um, and I have no idea. <laughs> you know, there was there was a part of me that wondered like would they just you know, uh you know, would they even go through this this silly process of of applying and begging the FTC um or would they just say okay, we no longer have CDA 230 and now we need to act accordingly. Um and uh, you know, and, and so you sort of have this, this weird dichotomy cause you could see a world where companies just say, okay, we no longer have two thirty, and we have to act very, very differently. And, and then even then you would have, you know, potentially two different ways of dealing with that. One would be, uh, let everything through and, and, you know, uh, ignore everything, uh, effectively, or just, you know, moderate like crazy to try and avoid any liability, um, And that's that's even if that's even if you ignored the whole FTC process or do you then go through this crazy FTC process and then have to continually make efforts to show by clear and convincing evidence that you're not uh, biasing against any particular political party. Um, And and I I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know what any platform would actually choose to do under those circumstances. Well,
2: I I think that the. Calculus partly depends on politics of the FTC, and are you because are will you go through this sort of Orwellian uh, political neutrality panel? uh, That that'll really depend on. Do you think you have enough votes at the FTC? Because they really are ultimately making a subject a judgment about a platform's subjective intent. Because as Daphne pointed out, there's sort of this business necessity uh, exception. And that really comes down to what are the subjective intentions of the platforms when they're moderating. And that's really I mean there, there's no way to look at that in advance and say this this is what the subjective intention of this huge company with thousands of employees. this is what they intend. I mean, it's really going to come down to the this sort of value judgment of a few FTC commissioners.
1: I think it also depends what kind of company you are, right? If, yeah. if you're something kind of like a common carrier in the first place, uh, so your Cloudflare or your Amazon Web Services, or something like that, you know, maybe you gamble on trying to prove that you're neutral because you just don't intervene in content all that much anyway. Right. But if you are google web search (laughs) and anyone who disagrees with the search ranking for any query can charge that you're acting with bias i don't see any way that that you go down the road of challenging that and and proving to someone's satisfaction that that the ranking you've arrived at is in fact the quote unquote neutral one
0: (laughs) uh yes And, and i i mean this is again getting into the weeds but the whole idea that that You know, there is such a thing as search neutrality when the whole point of search is to bias results in the favor of what you are most looking for, um, is is a weird one, but (laughs) that's that's also another uh rabbit hole that we, (laughs) we don't necessarily need to go down. I mean, the other thing too is like you know, if this bill somehow magically did pass, right, I mean, it would be challenged pretty quickly, um, and uh, I would hope be found unconstitutional um, for a variety of reasons, but um, you guys are all the lawyers, and I'm not. So is it, it, it am, am I am I wrong in thinking that it's it's an obviously unconstitutional law?
1: Well, he, here's what the proponents would say: they would say we're not requiring platforms to carry anything. Mm-hmm. All we're saying is. If you are not neutral we're going to withdraw a benefit where we didn't need to give you CDA 230 in the first place and we are going to withdraw it if you don't sort of maximize uh, speech opportunities across the political spectrum And I think ultimately that's wrong for a lot of reasons some of some of which Aaron got into but it, it does get more complicated because this isn't a government mandate for the platforms to carry, you know, the, the KKK or whoever they now have to carry. It is a, the government using leverage to threaten to withdraw a statute, a statutory benefit.
0: Yeah. I mean, isn't that to some extent, I mean, I guess it's different, but the, um, uh, the Supreme court case around, um, the slants trademark, right. It had some of the same issues, um, where it was, you know, the Lanham Act said, you know, you could refuse a trademark if it was, if the uh, PTO found it to be offensive. Um, And that was struck down as unconstitutional because it required the trademark, even though it was a question of, you know, uh, granting or withholding uh, some sort of government provided benefit, um, that because it was based on, on content, it was unconstitutional.
3: A little bit. I I mean, I think what's here and and what Daphne's sort of driving at is is it's true that that 230 and and removing 230's protections, if Congress just, you know, X'd out all of Section 230 tomorrow, that doesn't raise a First Amendment concern. Um, It's certainly not, you know, that's 230 is not sort of uh, the First Amendment, right? But to the extent that... What Holly's bill does here is it creates sort of a content-based distinction um, based on First Amendment activity, which is like, does this government body think that you have engaged in editorial practices that are protected by the First Amendment in a way that it believes are you know, kosher under the statute, and they then can provisionally um, you know, grant or deny you the immunity that Section 230 grants? um then that's where the first amendment issues come into play and there's all sorts of vagueness questions about what what it means to be neutral i mean uh, you know we we've sort of explored the sort of existential questions about it but just as a legal matter what does that mean um what does it mean to be politically neutral um there's probably some admin law overlay about you know what are the ftc's interpretations here and um potential overbreadth issues and then i think also lurking in the background something that jeff brought up earlier is sort of like an unconstitutional uh, conditions question about like you have to name and shame and potentially fire your employees (laughs) to to maintain this um and sort of government enforcing that and making you make choices and, and publicly speak about those choices um that you would not otherwise do um you know i think the the counter argument would be what daphne just said is like oh we're not making you do that um you are free to to not engage in this process but i think that's a little bit too cute by half um and at the end of the day all of that is sort of you know it's it's all about the political decisions that these platforms make about political speech and they're sort of premising the grant of immunity on those
0: yeah all right uh well with that uh um I, I i think we'll we'll try and wrap, wrap this up um i i i wanted to thank all three of you for for being willing to to jump on this podcast i mean the, this bill just came down and i know that that you've all been very busy um with this in particular but also with lots of other stuff that is going on because there's always lots of stuff going on right now um and so i appreciate you all taking time out of your schedule to to have this discussion i think um there'll be plenty more discussion about this bill and uh as some of you have suggested this is probably not the end of discussions about what will be done with 230 uh and so there should be plenty more of these discussions uh coming up so uh uh Jeff, you timed your book uh perfectly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of being in the center of, of a bunch of big important debates. Um uh, but but uh thanks to, to all three of you for taking time out of your day to to jump on the podcast and have this discussion. Uh and uh, uh thanks to everyone for listening and uh, we'll be back next week.
1: Thanks
2: a lot. Mike. Thank to
3: if we don't stand up to them, someone will get huh? So grab a shovel and dig up the